I love preaching on Palm Sunday in a presidential election year. I love it not because it gives any opportunity to endorse a particular candidate or to proclaim that God has anointed an individual to lead us as a nation. That is not why I enjoy preaching on Palm Sunday in a presidential election year. I enjoy preaching on Palm Sunday in an election year because of what it shows us about ourselves and how it illuminates the gospel reading that we just had a moment ago. You see around you the fervor with which we want a particular leader. There is lots of talk about who is the right one, what makes them the right one. If the candidates themselves aren't saying it, people are saying it to one another. Even getting hot and bothered by perhaps the position of the opposite. Because there is such hope for someone who will come and make things right. Won't someone come and make things right? We want a king. Someone who can establish a new order. One that helps us flourish. That brings about the best that we can possibly imagine. We want a king. That's how people spoke when Jesus got on that donkey and entered Jerusalem. We want a king. Glory to God in the highest. Here he comes. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Please, Lord Jesus, take your throne. Make things right. We can imagine that scene in Jerusalem because we see the fervor around us in this election year. People gathered together, bringing their children, wanting to catch a glimpse of the one that they hope will come and make things right. Laying down their cloaks, if you will, in order to help pave a way as a demonstration that we're behind you. You're the one for us. It's an inclination of humanity to want a king. People for all time have wanted a king. That's why there always has been one. In the early years of the Hebrew people, when they were in tribes, 12 of them, and there was a confederacy among them, they began to be aware of the political pressures in the region and decided that they wanted a king. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. The leaders were coming together, hungry for someone to lead all of them in some unified voice. And the way that it's told in 1 Samuel, God, almost like a parent, speaks to them, trying to encourage them not to choose a king. God sounds as if he is encouraging them to look solely at him, knowing that if they have someone on the throne, they're likely to replace God with that very individual. I think that that passage in 1 Samuel speaks to what we know about ourselves. We need something to hold on to. That's what happened when Moses went up on the mountain face to face with God, and while he was away, they built a golden calf because they said to one another, He's not coming back. And we're out here with nothing. They wanted something to hold on to. 
We, as human beings, want something to hold on to, and sometimes God just seems too far away, too distant of an idea, maybe just an idea. And so we look for a king. Well, as you know from history, it's impossible to find a good one. There's a little bit of good in any one of them that has taken the throne, but power can breed all kinds of things that are not favorable to the common man. And we know this about ourselves, and God knows this about us. And so when we come back to this passage this morning, this gospel lesson, and consider Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem and the hailing of him as king, we're invited to listen to ourselves. What is it we do want? What is it we're hopeful in the kingdom? How is it that we want the world to operate? These questions are circling around us, all around us. We hear it on the news, we talk about it with one another. And as Christian people, we are called to go back to our own faith life and to say, how does that inform our actions? Politics, indeed, is a part of living together as people. And although I don't know my Latin, I do know enough to know that something in that word speaks about people. You can go look it up and then you can tell me. But politics does happen as we come together, together as humans and try to order ourselves. It happens even in the church. You might remember that this past January, all the bishops of the provinces of the Anglican Communion gathered together in Canterbury, 38 of them, for a primates meeting. This happens every few years. The primates have been stressed in their relationship with one another ever since 2003 when we, as the Episcopal Church, consecrated an openly gay man as bishop in the Diocese of New Hampshire. I don't know if you remember that time, but I do quite vividly. It echoed around the world in the Anglican Communion. And people began to take sides about this decision. Is this a faithful decision or not a faithful decision? And people started to want their side to be right. They asked the other side, if you will, to leave the Anglican Communion. Because you see, we don't have one governing person. We don't have a king, if you will, of the Anglican Communion. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the first among equals. He's just the guy who sets the agenda and puts the date on the calendar and makes sure everybody knows about it. But people wanted him, perhaps, to take a stronger role. There was talk about changing our polity so that he could have more authority and make a ruling even on this for the sake of our Anglican communion. Indeed, when there is strife among people, there's even more of a desire to have a strong leader who can just make a decision, hopefully in the way we want it. And that's indeed how the Anglican Communion felt. Please, let's let the Archbishop of Canterbury have the authority to make a call and make a decision on this issue about same-sex relationships. And please let him be on our side. <laughs> that was the little sub-piece of that argument. 
But we held fast as the Anglican Communion and decided no, we would not change our polity for the expediency of wanting to relieve ourselves of this tension. And so we didn't change our polity. And still here we are 13 years later working through the tension that we feel. Back this past January, just a few months ago, when the primates gathered together in Canterbury, our presiding bishop was asked to sit quietly, to not participate in the life of the church and in the decision-making because of our actions as an Episcopal church last summer when we decided to indeed move forward with blessing of same-sex relationships. This was troubling, to say the least, troubling for all of us. And you might remember that I sent out an email that brought this to your attention. Our new presiding bishop did a beautiful job of speaking of God's love to his brothers around that primate's gathering. He was reflecting on that in an interview in the New York Times just yesterday, where the interviewer asked him how this was working out, this strife around same-sex unions, and then also the church's call to be mindful of the givenness of racism. The interviewer asked him if there were particular programs or actions, decisions, laws perhaps that we would enforce or advocate for in order to bring about change, both in the communion and in the larger um, civic world. Presiding Bishop Michael Curry answered with these words. He said, laws can change behavior and must change behavior, but laws don't change hearts. We've got to be about the work of changing and transforming hearts. And that happens by deepening real, sustained relationships and listening to and telling and sharing our life stories. He went on to say, What I believe about human equality and dignity is grounded in what I believe about the love of God, and that love is not coercive. So I have to respect my brothers and sisters who differ on these questions. I have to respect them enough not to be coercive. Gosh, this is hard. This is hard to live this life of faith in this world. Can't we just make a law? Can't we just get a king? We are called as Christian people to be about the act of loving one another. Indeed, all the bishops of this Episcopal church were gathered together for about a week praying about this very matter, wondering how can we encourage the people of the Episcopal Church who call this their church home, how can we encourage them in this time of frustration and anger, not only with the anger that we witness, but the anger that we feel, not only the disappointment that we are aware of, but the disappointment we feel, how can we encourage them? They sent to us, these bishops of our, of our church, a letter and ask that they be, this letter be read in every church this Sunday. It's a word to the church from the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church. Dated Holy Week 2016. You will hear in it language that reflects our nation. I'm certain, having been a part of church letter writing before, 
that there are many people around that table who chose these words carefully in order to reflect the depth of the situation that they're most familiar with. It's only three paragraphs long, so I read it for you here. On Good Friday, the ruling political forces of the day tortured and executed an innocent man. They sacrificed the weak and the blameless to protect their own status and power. On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead, revealing not only their injustice, but also unmasking the lie that might makes right. In a country still living under the shadow of the lynching tree, we are troubled by the violent forces being released by this season's political rhetoric. Americans are turning against their neighbors, particularly those on the margins of society. They seek to secure their own safety and security at the expense of others. There is legitimate reason to fear where this rhetoric and the actions arising from it might take us. In this moment, we resemble God's children wandering in the wilderness. We, like they, are struggling to find our way. They turned from following God and worshipped a golden calf constructed from their own wealth. The current rhetoric is leading us to construct a modern false idol out of power and privilege. We reject the idolatrous notion that we can ensure the safety of some by sacrificing the hope of others. No matter where we fall on the political spectrum, we must respect the dignity of every human being, and we must seek the common good above all else. We call for prayer for our country, that a spirit of reconciliation will prevail, and we will not betray our true selves. That's a big prayer, that we will not betray our true selves. Isn't that all of our prayers? That in our actions we might claim that which we know to be the best about who we are? As we go and read the Passion at the end of this service, we will see people want Jesus to be a king, and we'll even see a person who betrays his own self. The good news, my friends, is that God loves us in the midst of all of it. That God welcomes us in the midst of our very humanity, our vulnerability, our frailty, our propensity even to betray our true selves. This good news of God's redeeming love is meant to empower us to take another step further, even if it's a shuffled step, another step further into following the good news of God in Christ Jesus. Even if we're not certain what it might mean, we know that God is there with us. We've seen it already happen, that God is with those in their suffering and in their redemption and salvation. And so I close with the words of Bishop Michael Curry, who asked in the interview that was printed yesterday whether he has a perspective on any of the candidates that are running for president. His answer is, it's not appropriate, and I'm not sure it's even legal, to make a partisan pronouncement on any candidates, but to articulate the values on which we stand. Love, at least as Jesus articulated it, 
has to do with seeking the good and the welfare of others before one's own enlightened self-interest. I'll read that sentence again. Love, at least as Jesus articulated it, has to do with seeking the good and the welfare of others before one's own enlightened self-interest. Our politics must reflect that. Amen.